Well, good morning. It, it really is a joy to be with you again. I've enjoyed my last couple of visits with you and times with you worshiping and spending time in the Word of God. Um, David read 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8 to 10. And verse 9 reads, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I just want to commend your, your pastor and his wife to you as an example uh, in the way that, yeah, they've hosted my wife and I. They welcomed us last night and had a meal with them, had very warm fellowship, really helpful spiritual conversation with them last night. And so we, we thank you for that. And I know in the past, others of you have shown hospitality to me, a stranger to you, uh, for the first time, though a brother in Christ. So, yeah, thank you. And, yeah, if you would turn now to Matthew chapter 27. As you turn there, I just want to again extend my greetings to you from your sister church in the West Rand of Johannesburg, Antioch Bible Church. Again, we are so thankful that the Lord has brought you a pastor now for over a year. Is it now 13 months? And, yeah, we rejoice with you and, and just read the uh, latest newsletter that uh, Carabo put up for Sola 5 on behalf of, of Restenberg CBC. So we're rejoicing uh, with the installation of, of David as a fellow elder and to hear of other deacons and, and those who are serving faithfully here. Matthew 27. I want to look with you at a portion of Scripture from verses 45 to 54. 45 to 54. We're going to focus on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I don't know all of you personally, but I trust that for many of you, uh, these will not be new things that you hear this morning, but I hope to open them up in a way that might be fresh and memorable. And we pray that the Spirit of God would take these core truths of our Christian faith and apply them to our hearts. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord's help? Father, we need you. We really need you right now. And we just ask, please, that you would give the good gift of your Holy Spirit that you would help me to open up these verses and some of the truths contained herein, and that, Lord, you would take those truths and apply them as only you can to each of our hearts and minds and lives. Father, please exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, that he would be loved and honored with our lives, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Let me read in your hearing. You can follow along as I read Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54. I'm reading from the ESV. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, when they heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. 
The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. We, we live in a time of curtains. You young boys and girls, you know that curtains are used at home. Just like these curtains over the windows here in the church building. We put curtains up inside of our homes in order to hide. To hide what is on the inside of the curtains from those who are on the outside of the curtains. If you've ever been in a hospital room, especially a room where there's more than one patient, you'll notice they use curtains in order to divide between one patient and the other. That is the function of curtains. They, they hide, they separate, they conceal, they divide. But I wonder if you've ever considered perhaps the most significant curtain that exists. And it's not a physical curtain that can be seen by the human eye. Instead, it is a spiritual curtain. It is a wall of separation that exists by nature between God our Maker and we, His creatures. Because of our sin, we are cut off right from birth from God who has created us. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says, Your sins have separated you from your God. Your iniquities have caused him to hide his face from you. But you see, it wasn't always that way, was it? Man was not always separated from God. You recall in the book of Genesis that when God made Adam and Eve, they enjoyed from the very beginning of their existence fellowship with God. They had access to God. They spoke directly to and heard directly from the living God. They enjoyed his presence. They talked with him. They, they walked with him face to face, as it were, in the garden. And yet, after they sinned, when Eve took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when she ate and she gave to her husband Adam and he ate, immediately, the very next time God came to visit them in chapter 3, what is it that Adam and Eve did? They hid themselves from the presence of God. You see, there was a sense now of shame over their sin that created a reality of separation between God and man. And though God graciously covered them with the skins of an animal, a picture of the coming sacrifice of his own son that would cover their sins, yet he banished them from the garden, sent them out to the east, again to symbolize that they had forever lost access to the presence of God. And we, born into this world, sons and daughters of Adam, inherit from our forefathers a sinful nature, a sinful heart, a sinful bent within us, which cuts us off from God, separates us from the living God. And the worst part about this this invisible spiritual wall of separation is that there is nothing we can do to cut back through that wall. No amount of 
good works or religious zeal or Christian church attendance or Bible reading or praying or tears of repentance. There is nothing we can do. No commitments, no resolves, no turning over a new leaf and trying to be a better person, no sorrow over our sin. Not one thing we can do, not even all those things combined, that can gain us access back to God. And so we are left in ourselves, helpless, hopeless, and heading for hell, eternal separation from God. But we praise God that the gospel, the good news of the Bible, the message of good news is that God himself is in the business of tearing down such curtains. By his sovereign grace and power, he is pleased to rip such curtains in half and to make a way again for sinners like us to have access back to him. And I'd like to open up these verses in Matthew 27 surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus under that theme for you this morning. God tearing three curtains at Calvary. Perhaps this will help just hang the truths we'll see more lastingly on your minds. God tearing three curtains. First curtain I want you to see is God tearing the curtain of Christ's flesh. God tearing the curtain of Christ's flesh. Did you know that the New Testament refers to the, the flesh, the physical body of Jesus Christ, as a curtain? In Hebrews chapter 10, in verses 19 and 20, the writer to the Hebrews says these words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You see, the writer equates the flesh the physical body of Jesus with a curtain. What does he mean by that? Well, the body of Jesus Christ functioned as a curtain in this way. It was a sort of veil. It was a sort of hiding of the eternal divine glory and majesty that Jesus possessed as the Son of God. Jesus did not begin to exist when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. Jesus has existed as the eternal Son of God from before time has ever began. He has always existed in the presence of God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And as God the Son, for all eternity, he has possessed divine glory and infinite beauty and transcendent excellence and perfections as only God himself possesses. And yet when God Almighty, El Shaddai, came to this earth and took on human flesh, his flesh served as a sort of veil, a sort of covering that hid and concealed that divine glory to the eyes of those around him. It's interesting. You, you may have pictures like this in your home. You may have seen pictures like this in other places. Oftentimes, pictures of Jesus and his followers will show them, they'll depict them with this sort of halo hanging over their head or some kind of a, a physical light emanating forth from their faces or radiating around their bodies. But sadly, that just wasn't the case. 
When Jesus walked on the earth, Isaiah 53 says, he had no stately form or majesty that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing peculiar to his physical appearance that would have made people stop and say, wow, this is someone different. This is someone divine. In fact, you you may recall from reading the Gospels that this is the exact reason why people stumbled and struggled so much with Jesus' words and miracles. He spoke as never a man spoke before, with authority, with power, with clarity. He commanded the devils, and they obeyed him. He spoke to the winds and the waves, and they immediately hushed and stilled at his word. He rose the dead by simply touching the hand. He performed miracles that they had never seen before. And yet when they heard and saw him do these things and say these things, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who is this man? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother not Mary? Are these not his brothers and sisters here with us? You see, to the human eye, he appeared as nothing more than an average typical Jewish man because his his body veiled the reality of his divine glory. We sing the hymn, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail, incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God with us. God come in human flesh to dwell among his people. In him the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. And yet that bodily form veiled like a curtain his glory and beauty. And he carried that curtain with him throughout his entire life, from the cradle to the crucifixion, even to the grave. And it was in the last 12 hours of his life on earth that the veil, the curtain of Christ's flesh, would be torn by God. Notice verse 45. Jesus has been hanging on the cross in unspeakable agony for three hours at this point. And verse 45 says that from the sixth hour, that's not the sixth hour of his crucifixion, that's the sixth hour of the day. Roman time began at 6 o'clock. So the sixth hour would have been six hours from then, 12 o'clock. Christ was crucified at the third hour, 9 o'clock. So he's been hanging for three hours. And at 12 noon, midday, verse 45 says, There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Three hours of darkness over the land. Now what should we learn? What is the significance of this darkness? Well, you'll probably know that often in the Bible, darkness symbolizes the frown of God. Light symbolizes the smile of God. God's face toward his people to bless them, to do good to them, to symbolize he is pleased with them. And in the same opposite way, darkness symbolizes the frown of God. God having turned his face away from his people, the light of his countenance being away from them, and his people being under his curse, his displeasure, his divine wrath and anger. And so here, as Jesus hangs upon the cross, he is not just suffering at the hands of wicked Jews and godless Roman soldiers. He is ultimately suffering at the hands of God himself. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke 
his father gave. Isaiah 53 and verse 10, speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus over 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, said that it pleased the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, to crush him, putting him to grief. Jesus was suffering on the cross, ultimately at the hands of God, his Father. And we see that in verse 46. In case there's any confusion about the darkness in verse 45, verse 46 makes clear what I'm saying. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the one whom God prophesied of in the Old Testament and said, this is my servant in whom my soul takes delight. The one whom John 1 in verse 1 says that in the beginning he was with God, in his presence, face to face, for all eternity, enjoying mutual love, mutual joy, mutual acceptance between the Father and the Son, because he perfectly reflects the glory and beauty of God himself. This one who at his baptism, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And a voice from heaven at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus went up with three disciples said similarly, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The son of my love, my beloved son, whom my soul loves. It is this Jesus who on the cross has now become the object of the Father's scorn and hatred and unmixed fury and wrath. And so under the naked flame of God's wrath on the cross, he cries out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Unspeakable horror and pain under the judgment of God. And he's not hanging there for his own sins. Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He was a man in whom there was no deceit. There was no sin. He said to the Jews, which one of you convicts me of sin? And they had no answer. He's not hanging on the cross under the wrath of God for his own sin. He's hanging there under the wrath of God for our sins. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Can you sing that this morning? In your place, not in the place of sinners generally, but in your place particularly. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Though innocent, though pure, he was treated as a guilty, vile, wretched criminal by God because he was taking our place for our sins. We see God tearing the curtain of Christ's flesh. But I want you to see, secondly, God tearing the curtain of the temple. Look at verse 50. At the end of his sufferings on the cross, we read, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, verse 51, 
And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Verse 50 describes the way in which Jesus died on the cross. Never a man died like the Son of God on the cross. Every other human being that died by crucifixion died under the weight of their own body, died because of suffocation and drowning as their lungs filled with fluid, and they sputtered for mere breath as they expired on the cross. But here the Son of God triumphantly yields up his spirit with a loud cry. You remember he said, no man takes my life. I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down. He yielded up his spirit. He died at the moment he wanted to die. And he did so with a loud cry. And at the moment, his flesh and more than that, his soul were being torn by sufferings under the hand of God. Verse 51 says, at that very moment, he yielded up his life. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You'll recall, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that in the temple, that in the house of God, the place where the people of God came to worship and offer sacrifices, there were multiple layers, there were multiple rooms. As you approach the temple, you would come to the outer courts. Then you would come to the inner courts. Then you would come to the place of the altar of sacrifice and the the laven where the priests would would wash and, and offer sacrifices for the people of God for their sins. And then if you went in a layer further, you'd come to a place where only the priests could go into, the holy place. But then inside, beyond that room, was the very heart and center of the temple, the most holy place, the holy of holies, so called because it was the place where the presence of God dwelt on earth among his people. In that room was the Ark of the Covenant, and atop the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, the seat of covering, and atop that seat dwelt the Shekinah glory of God on the earth. And therefore, that place was holy, because a holy God manifested himself to his people there. And therefore, in front of that most holy place hung a curtain. A curtain that was there to symbolize the separation that existed between God and man. It was a massive curtain, many meters high, many meters wide, woven of many different fabrics. Some said, historically, it was thick as a man's hand width. This was an impenetrable, massive wall that communicated no trespassing. Only one man was allowed to go in to that most holy place, and that was the high priest. And he was only allowed to go in there one time out of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And before he went in there, he had to take off his normal clothing, bathe his body in water, put on specific priestly robes and clothes, then take the blood of the animal into the most holy place, sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood, and then immediately get out. Because to enter into the most holy place was a terrifying thing. You remember in Israel's history that when two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, when they offered up strange fire to God, what happened to them? They were struck down dead immediately. Jewish tradition tells us that at a certain point in history, They began to put bells on the bottom of the priest's robes when he would go into the most holy place. And they would tie a rope around his waist. You say, what for? Well, as long as they could hear the jingling of the bells, they knew that he was alive. 
But as soon as they couldn't hear the jingling of the bells anymore, they knew that something had gone wrong and he had been struck down dead in the presence of God. And so what the rope was for was so that they could retrieve the dead body without themselves having to go into the holy presence of God. This was a serious place. Even in the curtain, God gave instructions to Moses. And then later in the temple, Solomon made sure to follow these same instructions. In the curtain were woven cherubim. Why cherubim? Because when God removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, what did he place at the east of the garden at the entrance there? Cherubim. With a flaming sword darting back and forth to communicate no entrance. No way back to the presence of God. No more going back. You must move forward. And here that curtain also with the cherubim spoke loudly to the people of God. You cannot just rock up casually into the presence of God. You needed a mediator. You needed a representative. You needed a sacrifice in order to approach the holy, true, and living God. But the moment Jesus Christ yielded up his spirit on the cross, that curtain of separation that hung in the house of God for hundreds upon hundreds of years came tumbling down, ripped in half. This was an awesome, awesome event. I can't imagine what the priests who were ministering at that time in the temple must have thought when they looked up and heard that, that veil, that curtain, tearing in half. Could you imagine just this projection screen right here, all of a sudden, miraculously, just splitting in half from top to bottom and crashing down to the ground? But we again have to ask, what is the significance of the tearing of the curtain? Why include this in the gospel narrative at the crucifixion? Why did this happen at the moment Jesus breathed his last? There's much that can be said about it, but I just want to put before you two thoughts. Okay? What does the tearing of the curtain signify? Two things. First, and this is the most important, the tearing of the curtain, and you've probably already made this conclusion in your mind based on what you've been hearing so far, the tearing of the curtain signifies that now, for the first time in human history, there is access to God for sinners. Now, for the first time in history, unholy, guilty sinners who break the law of God continually have direct access into the presence of the holy God. No more would the Jews, if they would approach God through Jesus Christ now, no more would the Jews need sacrifices for their sins. No more animal sacrifices. No more grain offerings. No more slaughtering of bulls and goats and rams and cows. No more sprinkling of the mercy seat with the blood of animals. Because now, now, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, has been slain once for all for the removal of the sins of God's people. And friend, I tell you, if you're here today and you are trusting confidently in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, no more do you need any sacrifices for the forgiveness of your sins. No more do you need any offerings that you bring to God in order to make yourself right with the living God. No more sacrifices of repentance or faith or resolves or promises or commitments to God or to others. Not your Bible reading, not your devotions, not your prayer, not your evangelism, not your zeal, not your coming to Bible study, not your church attendance, not your raising your children in the Lord, not your marriage, not your efforts at work. None of that is an acceptable sacrifice to God for the forgiveness of your sins. 
There is one sacrifice that God now accepts for the forgiveness of sins, and that is the perfect, holy, pure sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. He has been slaughtered, sacrificed once for all for the forgiveness of sins. And now no more would the people of God need to approach God through a priest, through a mediator. No more would they need a earthly representative to go on their behalf to God to represent them and to bring their prayers to him, to bring their worship to him, to bring their offerings to him. And friend, if you're here today trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, no more do you need any Catholic priest, no Anglican bishop, no Protestant or Baptist preacher. You don't need any so-called man or woman of God. You don't need any ancestors. You don't need any evil or good spirits, angels or demons. You don't need any, any living popes. You don't need the Virgin Mary. You don't need any more mature Christians. You don't need any other created being, living or dead, earthly or heavenly, human or angelic, to go on your behalf and to mediate between you and God. If you come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have direct access into the presence of God in heaven. When Jesus Christ was slaughtered on the cross, he was buried three days later. Or sorry, he was buried the very next day. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he ascended 40 days after that into heaven. And as he ascended into heaven, the writer to the Hebrews says that it is, it is as though he was passing through the outer courts of the heavenly temple. He went through the external parts of the heavenly tabernacle. And he came into the very holy of holies in heaven, of which the earthly tabernacle and earthly holy of holies was a shadow and a type. He went into the very throne room of God in heaven. And he did not go there bringing the blood of bulls and goats. He went there with his own precious blood. And there, as it were, he sprinkled the mercy seat of God in heaven. And if you will approach God through simple childlike faith in Jesus Christ, you will have all your sins immediately forgiven. You will be adopted as a child of God and know him as your intimate father. And you will have direct, continual access to the very throne room of God in heaven. There is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Third and finally, I want you to see God tearing the curtain over the soldiers' hearts. I'll be brief here. God has torn the curtain of Christ's flesh. He's torn the curtain in the temple. Now he tears the curtain over the soldiers' hearts. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. These soldiers, at the most, would have been the same soldiers who had received Jesus from the Jews when he was brought to Pontius Pilate. At most, they would have been the soldiers who took him into the private room in the governor's palace, who took off his outer garment, who whipped and tore his back open, who spat upon him, who mocked him, who beat his body. And at the very least, these would have been the soldiers who led him out from Jerusalem up to Mount Calvary, stretched out his hands and nailed him to the cross. 
nailed his feet to the cross and lifted him up to die. And at the very least, these would have been the men who, as Jesus was there suffering unspeakably, covered in spit and blood and shame, they were the ones who would have been gambling for his outer garments, cold and indifferent to what he was experiencing. And yet, verse 54 says, when they saw the sky overhead go instantly black at midday, when they felt the quaking of the earth around them, when they saw the rocks being split in half, something began to happen inside their souls. Verse 54 says they were filled with awe. And I believe this is not just natural, normal fear, but this is a God-given supernatural terror that struck their souls. And I say that because no one else who saw these things is recorded as being filled with fear like these men. No one else gives this confession that they give. And we have to ask, what's the difference? This was not a natural, normal fear that all of us would experience if the ground here right now were to split in half and begin to suck some of us down into the abyss. This was a supernatural terror as they began to understand what was happening. Luke records at this point, the centurion cried out, truly this man was innocent. You see, they realized that these things were happening around them. They saw the way that Jesus died and they knew this man was no criminal. No, no. We weren't just doing another day's normal work today. Today, we put our hand to something wicked. Today, we have had a part in crucifying the very Son of God. And as they were overwhelmed with their sin, they became fearful before God. But thankfully, the work of God in them was not just to bring them to a fear over their guilt and sin but to bring them to a faith when they looked upon the crucified Messiah. And so they cried out, truly this was the Son of God. And I believe this wasn't just the cry of fear. This was the cry also of faith. Just think about this kind of confession for these Roman soldiers. In the face of a Roman culture where there was a pantheon, a multitude of gods, a God for every part of your life, they confess there is one true and living God. And in the face of hostile Jews who had accused Jesus of blasphemy for calling himself the Son of God, in front of that group of mockers and scoffers, they cry out, this one was the unique Son of God. This is an amazing confession. And it raises the question, how? How did they come to this confession? I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As you're turning there, I just want to preface this passage by, by making a couple comments. We heard read earlier in our hearing... 1 Corinthians 12, where the Apostle Paul says, No man can say Jesus Christ is Lord except by what? By the Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus brought his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, right, he steps forward. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't get this conclusion from flesh and blood. Not your own flesh and blood. 
It wasn't your own study. It wasn't your own wisdom. It wasn't your own intellect or intuition or inclination. And no one else taught it to you. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It was God who had revealed the identity of Jesus Christ to Peter. 2 Corinthians 3 Now, in context, this is speaking primarily to Jews, but there is a broader reality here that exists in every human heart. 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 15, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Just like the Jews, we as Gentiles have by nature, because of our sin, a veil over our hearts. It hides from us the glory, the beauty, the worth, the supreme excellence of Jesus, the Son of God. And rather than loving him, the true light, and coming to him, we love our darkness and we hate the Son of God. We love our sin And we go on living in the lusts of our flesh, living for ourselves in drunkenness and in drug addiction and in sexual immorality and in lying and in pride and in bitterness and in hatred and in selfishness. Until God is pleased to remove that veil. Drop down to chapter 4. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, notice the play on words, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then verse 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the same way God in Genesis said, let there be light when there was nothing but darkness, when there is nothing but darkness in the unbeliever's heart, when God is pleased, he says, let there be light in the heart and soul of that man, woman, or child. And when the light of the knowledge of God comes into that soul, the veil is removed and the eyes of our hearts are open for the first time to see the awfulness, the wickedness, the seriousness of our sin against God, to see the holiness and the justice of God, that he would be just and right to condemn us to hell forever for our rebellion against him. Sin becomes awful, God becomes holy, and Christ becomes precious. Because there in the Son of God, we see on the cross our only hope of salvation. We see the perfect, sinless Son of God slaughtered for our rebellion. And by grace, we come in saving faith and look upon the pierced one, the crucified Messiah, and we trust in him. We put our confidence in him that his life and his death and his resurrection is our hope of acceptance and forgiveness and salvation with God. And we find when we look unto him that he is altogether lovely. He is chiefest among 10,000. And he becomes, by the work of the Spirit of God, the very treasure and highest pleasure of our soul's delight. And I want to just ask you in closing here this morning, has God the Holy Spirit removed the veil from your heart? Have you experienced the awfulness of your sin? Have you experienced the weight of guilt under the condemnation of God for your sins? But more than that, have you been led by God to come to Calvary and to look upon the Son of God by saving faith 
and to entrust your soul into his hands? Are you clinging to him as your righteousness, your acceptance before God? Have you surrendered your life to him as your Lord? Is it your desire to please him and to serve him as your one and only master? And have you come to find him to be the greatest joy of your life? That to know Jesus Christ is of surpassing excellence and value. That all other things in life, all other relationships, all other possessions, all other hopes and ambitions are rubbish, are dung, are worthless compared to this crucified Son of God who saved you. And a final brief word for you to take with you, and I I commend to you to meditate on later today. If you're here today as a true child of God, trusting in the sufferings of Jesus Christ for your salvation, do not make the mistake of leaving the cross behind you as you go on in your Christian life. The sufferings of Jesus at Calvary are a panacea. They are a medicine, a balm to address every struggle and every issue in your life as a Christian. And I would ask you today, if you're struggling with spiritual or physical afflictions, what do the sufferings of Christ say to you in the midst of your sufferings? If you're struggling with doubt over your salvation, struggling with assurance because of some sin that you're wrestling with, you're striving hard, and because of some lingering, ongoing sin, you're wondering if God really has forgiven you, if God really accepts you, if, if you'll really stand in the day of judgment. What do the sufferings of Christ say to you? If your heart has been cold recently, feels backslidden in your affections toward Jesus, you feel more excited more warmed and more drawn to sin and to the fleeting passing pleasures of the world and more cold and indifferent to the things of Christ. What do the sufferings of Jesus say to you this morning? I commend you to go home and take whatever struggles, whatever difficulties, whatever circumstances you're in, to take them to the sufferings of Jesus Christ at the cross and to learn there to live out of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, to apply his crucifixion to your doubts, to your fears, to your sufferings, to your weakness, to your sin, and to your temptation, and to find there strength, strength to live to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.